Now, welcome to another inspiring edition of Sound Insight with Dr. Tom Curran. Good morning. Welcome to Sound Insight. This is Tom Curran on this Monday morning edition. It's also a Sacred Heart Radio book club edition of our program. And today we're going to read a book that I know I'm going to enjoy. It's St. Thomas Aquinas by G.K. Chesterton, two of my favorite authors. And I'm joined today by three of my favorite people. Uh, oh, did you like was that? Did, that was a nice. very nice lead. Was that, was that smooth, Father too. Nagel? I, very smooth. <laughs> I don't know if I believe it, but it's very smooth. <laughs> so, well, it, joy encompasses all people, you see, Father. Okay, all right. I, I'm joined by Father Kurt Nagel, Father Jim Johnson, and Pam Gunderson. Good morning, Fathers. Good morning, Pam. Good morning. Good morning, Tom. Good to be here, Tom. Yeah, this is exciting. So today we have a, a, a lot to cover, and the way that G.K. Chesterton writes, a lot will be found in just a little. Well, we're going to take just a little break. When we come back, we'll begin with the scripture reading, a prayer, and then we'll dive into St. Thomas Aquinas by G.K. Chesterton. We'll be back in a minute. Hey, this is Dr. Tom Curran, the host of Sound Insight, but also a realtor serving wonderful folks like you in the state of Washington and in Idaho. I've had the privilege and pleasure of helping dozens of families in the last two and a half years discern and find a, a strategy, a path, and a plan to help their families find a whole new life in eastern Washington and northern Idaho. If I could be of service to you in that, I would love to. Please reach out, drtomcurran.com, drtomcurran.com. Welcome back to the program. This is Tom Curran. We're going to begin with a scripture reading and a prayer, and Father Nagel is going to lead us this morning. And I've chosen uh, a reading from the Book of Wisdom, I thought was appropriate, chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. Therefore I prayed, and prudence was given me. I pleaded, and the spirit of wisdom came to me. I preferred her to scepter and throne, and deemed rich as nothing in comparison with her. Nor did I liken any priceless gem to her, because all gold in view of her is a little sand, and before her silver is to be accounted mire. Beyond health and comeliness I loved her, and I chose to have her rather than the light, because the splendor of her never yields to sleep. Yet all good things come to get together came to me in her company. Gracious God, I ask your blessings upon us today, and through the intercession of St. Thomas Aquinas, may we grow in our appreciation of your wisdom, that we might be wise in the way your ways rather than those of the world. Bless us in this conversation, that we might truly uh, be instruments of your light and wisdom to those who are listening. And I ask these prayers and petitions through Christ our Lord. Amen. The Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Father Nagel. So today it's a Sacred Heart Radio book club edition of Sound Insight, and you can get all of these book club editions of the program on sacredheartradio.org. I really encourage you to bookmark that website, but even better, download the app because that'll give you the ability to listen to live streams of all the wonderful programming on Sacred Heart Radio, but also access the archive of all Sacred Heart Radio book clubs. And that goes back a number of years now. Today we're covering St. Thomas Aquinas by G.K. Chesterton. And we always just do a quick overview of what did you think about the book? How, what, what do you, what's your you know, initial sort of overview or take on the book? And we always give that first place to Father Nagel. So, Father Nagel, we're going to turn to oh, you and just you. say, what, do you, uh, what was your impression of this book and uh, any comment you have as we get launched? I was very surprised by this book, and the reason I say that is it wasn't the book I thought it was. I, I read this probably 30-some years ago when I was a lay 
a layperson back in my student days, I had come back to the church uh, as a graduate student at age 25. And I do remember, I, I, I forget the exact year, but somewhere in between then and when I went off to the seminary at age 30, I read this book as part of my kind of um, uh, learning about Catholicism, my, my reversion. And my memory of it was that it was a great introduction to Thomas Aquinas. It was a nice brief, it was, it was his life and um, it was just an introduction to his thought as well. And, and so I thought, oh, that's a, you know, I'll look forward to reading that again. Well, I, actually my experience though of reading it uh, this time was very different. I, I, don't think it's a, I don't think it's an introduction to, to, to Thomism or to Thomas Aquinas. It, it, I, I believe it does require a certain amount of uh, familiarity with Aquinas um, to really appreciate it because what Chesterton does as usual is he lets you see things from the opposite end. He likes to flip things on their, on their sides or on their heads so you, you get new reflections and new insights because he, he, he tries to present things in perhaps um, ways, paradoxical ways, ways that perhaps go uh, against what you would assume. And I think it works. I think it's an interesting book that way. I think it's, it's useful. I, I, and looking back on it, I think what happened was in my, in my college career, I did take classes on medieval thought. Uh, I had a seminar on, on uh, intellect, medieval intellectual history, etc. I think I did have some background that I kind of forgotten that I had. And so the book did work for me because I really did appreciate the book when I read it way back. Because I do think it's a good book. I think it's a great book. I don't think it's the first book I would hand somebody in the pew to say, hey, you want an introduction to Thomas Aquinas and his thought? Here it is. Um, I think it takes a little bit more than that. So, again, I thought it was, it was valuable. It was interesting. I didn't have a difficult time reading. I thought it was an interesting book in that way. Um, so, but again, it was, it was just eye-opening to me how my perception of what I thought the book was it really isn't what the book was like at all. Father Johnson. Well, I'd say that there are uh, pearls here. There, there's wonderful sentences and wonderful ideas that Chesterton puts on Aquinas and reveals about Aquinas. I, I'm not sure. Um, I think it presupposes a certain philosophical background. I mean, I think it's it's worth reading even if you don't have the philosophical background, but I think there's you know, and, and also historical background, because there's lots of references to the 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 English situation at the time of Chesterton and English philosophers and and such. Uh, I don't want that to scare people off, uh, because, like I said, there are pearls here, and I think uh, you know overall, um, I think it, it presents an, uh, and I think this is one of his main points uh, is that Christianity and Thomistic philosophy. Uh, presents an optimistic view of the world, or optimistic, not uh, maybe not optimistic view of the world, but is full of Christian optimism um, about the possibilities of of salvation, the possibilities uh, in God, um, and I think, and and certainly, it's it's a great apologetic for uh, Saint Thomas and for his philosophy and for his. Uh, and 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 a lot number of the things that his life his uh, life reveals to us about what it is to be a follower of Christ and a saint. You know, when I think about uh, 
for me, the gift of this book, it, it's, it does really reflect on the gift of, of Chesterton, uh, the, the paradoxical approach to things, uh, it, to, to get at the idea that this book isn't you know, simply an introduction. And he talks about it, some kind of popular overview of, a, of Aquinas, and yet you have the, some of the greatest scholars in the world saying, this is an incomparable introduction to Aquinas, one that I could never have written, right? Some great scholars have, have written that kind of uh, testament about this book. Absolutely. Uh, I, I would say it like this. I would say it that the scholars of Aquinas are kind of like the scholars who are standing beside a pool watching a diver dive in, and they're looking at the diver dive in from many angles. Well, Chesterton's the guy who dives in, and then he comes out and says, whoa, here's what I experienced. And so he is writing from sort of the, the amateur, if you will, the, the lover of Aquinas who dives in and then just comes out and then speaks things that the, 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 scholar, the scholars who keep their objective distance in their research methods, they may be missing out on the, the refinements of it. It's kind of like we're, um, we're, we're going to probably see a lot of World Cup soccer games, but frankly, we Americans are not going to really appreciate what we're seeing. We're not going to appreciate like how much finesse it took to make that pass or the way that shot curved or the way this team moved the ball down the field or the way this one player dominated a whole defense. It takes, uh, uh, you can appreciate it at ever deeper levels. And I think that's like St. Thomas Aquinas. It's like watching a World Cup soccer game. You're going to be able to appreciate it at ever deeper levels. As long as you get the basics of understanding what soccer is, you're probably never going to get to the end of really appreciating what he's done in the book. And that, but I, I would say that, uh, you know, Chesterton's no amateur. I mean, he's, uh, he may not be a Thomistic scholar, but he's a scholar of, of, you know, he has a great familiarity with all kinds of philosophy and, and uh, well-read um, going into it. Absolutely. Pam, what about you? There's a quote in chapter one that says, when asked for what he thanked God most, he answered simply, I have understood every page I ever read. Well, I'm most thankful that you and Father Nagel and Father Johnson understand every page you read, because some of this book was a little hard for me to understand. Pam, you're funny. And actually, that's you actually brought me to the first quote I was going to use to launch us into the book. That is, I, we must be on the same page. Ha, ha, ha. Okay, there we go. And, and it would be this. that for, I'd love to hear your reflections on that, con, on that very idea. When asked for what he thanked God most, it's on page three, he answered simply, I have understood every page I have ever read. Okay, so two parts to the question. The first part is, what do you think about that, fathers? And Pam, and then secondly, what is the gift for which you thank God most? So I, I'm really interested in, in the answer to that question. So if you can come up with a, you know, in, in the moment we have, I'm kind of delaying here to give you a minute to think of the answer, but for what do you thank God most? Uh, I would love to hear the answers to that question for you as well. So those are the two parts to the question. Well, I just uh, had... Uh, an ordination anniversary that was a day after the the priesthood ordinations and um, that evening when I celebrated mass um, I just had this profound um, gratitude to be able to be caught up in that and and 
and uh, I certainly don't have the gift of understanding every page I ever read, and there are many, many pages in, in here which I had to kind of ponder and wonder at, but, but to be caught up in to the wonder and awe that is, is the liturgy and have the privilege to, to stand in that place, uh, well, that's, that, that would be what I'm most grateful to God for. I think if, uh, to take both of your questions, what do I think of the quote first of all? I think it's, I think it's true. I think it, it shows both Aquinas's simplicity, um, because I think that, uh, I think it's true, but he, I think he just loved to know. Um, he's, it, I think that was his form of pleasure. Um, and that the idea of, of a clarity of ideas and, um, again, I, I think of him in terms of like this great mathematician who just likes to look at theorems or you know formulas or something like that, which is not me at all. But I, I think that that's what it's it's it, 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 it's talking about there. That quote that that this is um, and and not only does he have that characteristic, but he has it to the nth degree. That he has an ultimate degree. That he that he that he's being he's not bragging at all. There's no bragging there. It's simply. A statement of his pleasure uh, that he gives a thank to God for that it can be ser- it can serve him in, in various ways through his knowledge as a theologian and preaching and things like that. So I think it's it's, it's obviously very rare. I, I certainly cannot say that myself, um, despite what Pam says. And so, but I do. Th- I, I, I'm I'm just kind of admiring that it's, it's something that's um, the, the details are very different than anything I could experience, but I can appreciate. That what he, he's grateful for is God, you know, again, he recognizes God in that gift, and he's, you know, he knows why he was made. Um, it allows him to say, yeah, this is, I, I was made to know these things so that I can try to relate them and to unwind them for others and unfold them. And so, again, it's a, it's a, it's a statement of his, uh, again, it rings very true, very simple, very deep, um, very um, extraordinary. In the sense of rare, um, so I think for myself, I, I mean, it's a difficult question in terms of what I'm most grateful to God for, because at some level, anything you say requires you first to have been given life, existence. You know, again, if Thomas Aquinas was saying, "I'm my being, I actually exist," would be, would be conditional for anything else I would say, and that that includes things such as you know, my you know, to be born and have my family and, and all those things that are foundational. I would go to probably more, even more fundamental than what Father Johnson said. I, I certainly the, the priesthood and having the vocation of the priesthood would be great. But I think in some ways what I just mentioned, being called back to the faith, be given the gift of faith when I didn't, I, I had left it. I think in some ways that would be the greatest gift because my priesthood depends on that first. And there's been some times when I think I've recognized oh, that didn't have to happen. I, I could have spent my life and died not in the faith. Um, and... You know what would that even be like? That's, so there's a scary element to that, but but again, the gift of um, the second chance in that way that probably be a bit. So then then the priesthood and then flow from that. But I think that that gift of faith is number one. I'm most grateful for the gift of gratitude, and I didn't realize that most of my life um, until I started raising kids and realized that that was a gift I was passing on to them to recognize when they'd been given a gift and to be thankful for it and. That's a gift that gets richer and deeper as you get older. That's beautiful. And so now I can't, now I have to talk about kids and family. So <laughs> um, I, of, of course, like, you know, you, you could probably classify, I'm kind of, I'm kind of like taking the excuse of Father Nagel and saying, yeah, 
any answer you give is probably going to fall short or could be traced back to something deeper. But to stay along the lines of Aquinas, I would say that I'm most grateful for the gift of great teachers. I had, I, I've been blessed to have very profound, holy professors and leaders in the, in, in the, in the church work that I've done. Um, direct leaders who have been willing to uh, forge in me a way of seeing the world, understanding philosophy, theology, and in life in ministry. And so I, I'm very grateful to the Lord for them, for, for the leaders that I was given, both academically and let's call it pastorally or in the different apostolates uh, where I've uh, been privileged to serve. So I would say that that is a gift. And, and the gift that he's talking about specifically here, uh, this gift of I've understood every page I've ever read. Wow. You know, <laughs> that's just that that overwhelms me. I, I, I feel like I'm so slow. I, I feel like I have to go over a page again and again. And, and this book is like I step into um, that's like I'm stepping into a canyon in every other paragraph. <laughs> And it just it kind of falls deeper and deeper and deeper and expands wider and wider and wider. And I get just stalled by the sentences and it just makes me pause and reflect and wonder. And and my mind goes off and then I got to get dragged back down to get onto the next sentence. And and that that's both the great gift of uh, of Chesterton and frankly, Aquinas. But it's also the challenge of reading a book by Aquinas on Aquinas by Chesterton. So uh, that, that's my, my answer to the, to the second part of that, about uh, uh, that he understood every gift, every page he ever read. I, 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 had, I have not, is, is the simple response to that. So, well, today in the program, we are uh, engaged in a Sacred Heart Radio Book Club edition of Sound Insight. We're discussing the book St. Thomas Aquinas by G.K. Chesterton. And just as you've heard us discuss, G.K. Chesterton is one of those kind of writers where he has these poignant sentences that just tip on its head the ordinary way of looking at things or offers these flash of insights that cover these like wide vistas that are both beautiful and profound and paradoxical and, and make you pause. And, and so what we want to do is try to be faithful in covering the book, but also draw out some of these gems and um, bring them out into the open so that you get a taste of them, a flavor for them, and then be able to um, hear some reflections, and then maybe uh, you can get a sense of whether or not this is the book for you, whether you want to dive into this book. We're up against our first break. When we come back, um, we'll turn to Father Johnson. Father Johnson, if you have a quote, it can be in any part of the book you want, uh, that is like one of those poignant gems that you'd like to read and then offer a reflection on, we'd love to hear that. We'll do that in just a minute here on Sound Insight. Please stay tuned. Hi, this is Dr. Tom Curran, and you know me as the host of Sound Insight. I am also letting folks know that as a realtor licensed in the state of Washington and in Idaho, I love serving Catholic families and others who are discerning a move for yourselves. It's much more than buying or selling a home. It's discerning a whole new life. If that's something that you would find uh, a help in, if I could be of service to you, please be in touch. You can find out more at drtomcurran.com, drtomcurran.com. Welcome back to the program. This is Tom Curran. I'm with Father 
Kurt Nagel, Father Jim Johnson, and Pam Gunderson on the Sacred Heart Radio Book Club edition of Sound Insight. We're discussing the book St. Thomas Aquinas by G.K. Chesterton. And Father Johnson, Father Johnson has identified a nugget of gold that he wants to share with you all, and then we'll he'll offer a reflection and keep our conversation going. Well, you know, and one of the things that uh, Chesterton does is his way of condensing um, meaning and and the meaning of, of of Thomas's life in this case. And and here's one of the uh, one of the ways that he does it. It's not maybe one of the the most luminous quotes, but it's a it's a good summary. It's on page thirteen. Uh, Thomas was a very great man who reconciled religion with reason, who expanded it toward experimental science, who insisted that the senses were windows of the soul and that reason had a divine right to feed upon facts and that it was the business of faith to digest the strong meat of the toughest and most practical pagan philosophies. Um, (laughs) Uh, now there's a summary of you could write you know books on um but you know it, it's i think uh, another place you know he talks about um how his insistence on the reality of of reality of common sense reality uh is you know fundamental to our understanding of things it makes him a kind of a um you know, we often think of Saint Anselm as the doctor of the incarnation, uh, but uh, but uh, Saint Thomas has uh, has a great genius for um, helping us uh, get at the that you know very fundamental element of our faith. Um, and where is that quote? There's another quote on the uh, incarnation that I had here. But at any rate, um, oh, here, here, um, that in, in the way that he adopted Aristotelian philosophy, um, they va- this is on page 16, they vaguely imagine that anybody who is human at humanizing divinity must be paganizing divinity without seeing that the humanizing of divinity is actually the strongest and starkest and most incredible dogma in the creed, uh, that in insistent, this insistence of, uh, of um, on using the senses and our sense perception and what have you, it, it grounds us in, in, in who we are as being human beings, makes us more human, and then makes us more in touch with ultimately who we are created in the image and likeness of God. I was looking for a, a quote um, as I was looking to, to see how I'd present this book or what I'd want to say about it. And looking for this point, one of the basic points that Father Johnson was talking about, because I think it's central to Chesterton and also a, a central uh, part of uh, Thomas Aquinas' own philosophy, is, is the realism uh, in, in, the, in the philosophical sense of the word, the, the realism um, in both senses, really, that this is... I think when most people, when they have some sort of superficial encounter with scholasticism and, and uh, Thomas Aquinas, the Summa Theologica, etc., they think that this is incredibly uh, abstract, weird, um, unreal, um, you know, angels dancing on the top of a pin, that sort of thing. 
And when, in fact, if you understand, he's, he's going against all those other philosophers who are actually, they're the ones who are doing that. They're, they're trying to make us believe things that our common sense really rebels against, whereas Thomas Aquinas is really just taking a really complicated, full, extended way of explaining what most of us believe, uh, most of the people in the street walking believe, and how the world really works. But he's, he's doing it in such a way that he's grounding it in you know, the deepest sense of reason and logic, and so it's complicated in that sense, or it's in, at least it's intricate. But he is really a philosopher of the common sense. And I think so many of the philosophers and, and philosophies are completely unlivable outside of the mind of a few philosophy professors somewhere. You know, and they can't even live out the philosophies once they leave their office. So I, I just think that he's, he doesn't seem like this realist, but that's how you would describe him. And I think that's one of the central truths that the book needs to, is trying to get through. So the funny thing is, is that I, I had underlined the same section as Father Johnson as a wonderful sort of synthesis. And for me, when I think about the gift of Aquinas in my life, it's very much what both of you fathers have just said, that I enjoy so much reading the Summa Theologica because of the way it intertwines, it intermingles, it, it calls on the, the greatest use of reason and the greatest presentation of rational arguments, but does so in the light of faith, and in the light of faith will purify, will elevate, and will perfect the, the things that might have stood alone on a purely, let's call it quote-unquote purely rational basis, when he is drawing them from uh, often Aristotle, but also other Roman or uh, Greek sources. Um, and then he will say, watch, he won't say, watch this. He'll just do it. In, like in the light of faith, uh, in the light of Christ, uh, in the light of revelation, he will elevate, he'll purify, and he'll perfect those very things that are are found or discovered or articulated by reason. And and that is such a gift. Uh, there's another part in the first chapter where he talks about St. Francis was the antidote for the 19th century. St. Thomas Aquinas is the antidote for the 20th century. And I'm sorry, I'm jumping ahead, but he has he, he had more insight than he realized. And this book was written in 1933. And you take a look at all of the Thomistic-based responses to modernity that came in the 20th century, it's stunning. And and obviously, he doesn't know this in 1933, but it seems to me that it was precisely because of the things that we have just identified uh, as as being uh, real keys— to Aquinas, as, as uh, Chesterton uh, identifies them. We can go to those quotes in a little bit, but I want to just pause there. You may wonder who, who is the antidote in the 21st century. You know, who is the saint? Well, Balthazar, come on. <laughs> was, that, was, that, was that even a question? I mean, really. I'm setting uh, you up, Tom. Is <laughs> you know, he was just playing with you. Yeah, that's right. That's so funny. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, yeah, no, that's a great question. That's a great yeah, question. What, what, what is the, what is the, what is the, you know, um, as we are increasingly plugged in, but plugged in, but not um, tuned in to God, 
Um, there's so many things come at us that are not – I mean, uh, I had a priest friend of mine was talking about uh, how the electronic devices he thought were really not examples of true communion, whereas Eucharist, the Mass, uh, the interactions we have one-on-one are, are, are akin to true communion. And, but we are seeking communion in all these aspects, which are false co- kinds of communion. Um, you know, the, the, the virtual, virtual communion with other people, and, and which uh, does not lead to real communion with God. And so, you know, I, I wonder, you know, I wonder who is the, who is the saint that becomes the antidote to that. And I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know either. But the, 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 the question that, that, that I think he does raise, and you know, and I think Thomas Aquinas certainly is relevant to our, our age and our century. But I, but I think that's, I think we need to find those saints that will be the antidote to what ails us in this century. Yeah, it's. It, I'm, I'm pondering and reflecting here. I wish I had a simple answer. Um, the quote that we're talking about, it's actually quite early in the book. I found it. It's from page five in the book. And, and, and the quote says, the saint is a medicine because he is an antidote. Indeed, that is why the saint is often a martyr. He is mistaken for a poison because he is an antidote. He'll generally be found restoring the world to sanity by exaggerating whatever the world neglects, which is by no means always the same element in every age. Yet each generation seeks its saint by instinct, and he is not what the people want, but rather what the people need. Isn't that just beautiful? That is such yeah. a beautiful... Okay, we could talk about that the rest of the program, just that quote right there. And he goes on. Pam, you've been... No, I'm go sorry, ahead. go ahead. No, let Pam speak. Uh, no, I had that actual paragraph that you just read picked out. To share next, and I was going to ask you who's the current saint that we don't know about yet, and what is the biggest poison of the 21st century? It seems like there are so many to choose from, but I, I loved also that the generation seeks its saint by instinct. So whether we know it or not, we're out there looking for that saint. I think that if I was going to pick, I'd, I'd try to answer Pam's and the rest, the other question, people questioning that. Not with an actual saint, because I, I don't, but uh, I don't have an answer to that. But I think that Cheston gives a, a clue to how what he thinks this, what we need, and what I think that, that what the poison is at least, um, and that would be on um, eighty eight, eighty nine, very end of the bottom of eighty eight, and going to eighty nine. So just hold it with me for a little bit, um, talking about the. Um, the modern Renaissance intellectual is supposed to be, it's supposed to say to be or not to be, that is a question coming from Shakespeare. Then the massive medieval doctor does most certainly reply in the voice of thunder, to be, that is the answer. Talking about the, rea- the reality and the importance of being. But then he goes on to say, the point is important. Many not unnaturally talk of the Renaissance as, as the time when certain men began to l- believe in life. The truth is that it was the time when, few, when a few men, for the first time, began to disbelieve in life. The medievals had, many, had put many restrictions, and some excessive restrictions, upon the universal hunger uh, for fury of life. Those restrictions had often been expressed in fanatical and rabid terms, the terms of those resisting the great natural force, the force of men who desired to live. 
Never until the modern thought began did they really have to fight with men who desire to die. And so I think that is, you know, the modern, there's this, you know, this, this movement towards death, whether it's the suicide that's coming on more and more, the euthanasia, or just the, the lack of optimism, because this begins with the idea of if Thomas is an optimist about the world and about reality and who we are in, in Christian anthropology or anthropology in general. And that whole death wish thing is, I think, the 21st century. It's a dehumanizing. Uh, so in some sense, it's going to be, how do we, how do we get to, uh, to stress the importance of being and living? That annihilation of the self makes it better, you know, <laughs> of elimination of our brothers and sisters, of, of, some, of eliminating life makes it better, um, but rather than the, the view that there's something beyond, there's something more, there's something beyond, there's something uh, to be developed and that God wants us to have life and have it abundantly and have it to the full and that there's uh, uh, opportunity for redemption, renewal, no matter how far or we've gone or what we've done. I mean, uh, I think that it's... it's uh, when Mother Teresa identifies this culture of, of death, uh, you know, she kind of was uh, identifying it earlier, but it seems to have been getting worse in recent years. And I think you identify this with the suicides and with uh, um, the rapid uh, advance of euthanasia in a number of places, physician-assisted suicide and, and others. Uh, that's not, there's not a hope for what the, what is beyond. Yeah, I guess that I, I do think the past ages certainly have had the fall. The fall is real. Sin is real. The fury of life, as Chesterton describes, it really does deal with many mass murders, bloody wars, all that sort of stuff where you think life is cheap and it's not valued in these various cultures of the past, which is certainly true. But the idea today is, is not so much the fury of life, but that it's a good extinction is a good thing. Um, it's not that we fight for life because we, you know, and we, out of fury and passion, we we do these things. But it's really, you know, there are people who, you know, again, radical uh, ecologists who say the best thing would be if the human species to dis disappear. We're we're a cancer on the on the Earth's surface. Or there's you know, again the whole idea of to die is good, to to, be, to to leave this life is a good thing. Not to have children is a good thing because I don't want to pass on this idea of life. Um, there's all sorts of ways in which. Uh, I think the current society, Western elite society is, has its death wish and, and, and a love for death. So I think that's something new and something that uh, the body of Christ is going to have to respond to with some sort of antidote. And, and, and it seems like uh, what Thomas Aquinas is and what Chesterton argues is, is that Thomas Aquinas is the, argues for the value, the goodness of life, the with an optimism of salvation and such and, and and holds that out you know in his particular culture his particular circumstance uh, which you know there's a lot of well, there was a lot of war there was a lot of death there was a lot a lot of things but ho holds that up as a, as a light kind of shining in the darkness and 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 in communicates it in 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 a new way using the ancient philosophy and reason that makes it accessible to the people of his age um, and, and, and also down to our age. 
Pam, any comments on what you're hearing? Uh, no, it's very heartening. I guess that's what he's talking about when he talks about Christian optimism. It's it's hope, and it's uh, more than earthly hope. And being is good. Yeah. Uh, to be alive is good. Um, so anyway, I, I think you were, I interrupted you, Tom. No, no, that's fine. I, I, I'd love to dive further into this. Uh, in fact, there's quite a beautiful section right on the next page. You probably marked it. He compares uh, or contrasts Christ and Buddha, and one trying to escape from the world into the universe, and the Christian and the Buddhist wishes to escape from the universe even more than from the world. One would uncreate himself, the other would return to his creation. He goes on and on, and in a certain sense, you could drag that insight forward to the conversation that you, the fathers, have just been having. But what I what I'd like to do instead, if that's okay, is move forward to uh, another section in the book. And so, uh, Father uh, Johnson, you've already had a chance to identify a section. Father Nagel, you've done that as well. Pam, do you have another quote that you would like to? Um, uh, identify as something that uh, would be striking to you. Um, he was. It, this was towards the end of the book, and he was talking about um, something coming out of nothing. And ev- so he's talking about the an ever increasing flood. This is one forty five, ever increasing flood of water pouring out of an empty jug. Those who can simply accept that without even seeing the difficulty are not likely to go so deep as Aquinas and see the solution of his difficulty. Um, it's unthinkable for an admittedly unthinkable God to make everything out of nothing and then pretend that he's more thinkable that nothing should turn itself into everything. So I think he's arguing with atheists about um, you know creation and about where everything came from, but just the way he put it was so moving, I thought. I think it's just brilliant. <laughs> Again, he captures in that, you know, that couple of sentences, uh, you know, he's talking about evolutionary, uh, thinking about evolution as somehow tracing back to the source of the universe and not possibly how things grew in the universe. Mm-hmm. And and does in a couple of sentences what today people are trying to do in entire books. Uh, and he does it through a beautiful metaphor. So, I, again, he, these kind of sentences are found throughout this book. Today, we're talking about St. Thomas Aquinas by G.K. Chesterton. And uh, we're actually up against another break. When we come back, I'm going to, unless uh, fathers, is there, unless fathers, I'm going to give you the chance to talk about what uh, Pam just mentioned. Otherwise, we'll move on to another quote. And it has to do with um, what Thomas Aquinas Wanted, and this is uh, the sections are found on page 110. It's where the Lord offers to St. Thomas Aquinas the choice among all his gifts what would he have? Okay, we'll be back in a minute with more sound insight. Welcome back to the program. This is Tom Curran. It's the Sacred Art Radio Book Club edition of Sound Insight. We're talking about discussing the book St. Thomas Aquinas by G.K. Chesterton, and it's very rich. And its richness is one that maybe sometimes makes it hard to try to... You read a quote that's so profound, it's hard to add to it without kind of watering it down. <laughs> I, think some, I think sometimes that's how it feels, right? Yeah, absolutely. So um, on page... Uh, oh, Fathers, is there anything you'd like to say about uh, the section that Pam just mentioned? Only that I thought it was a great example of how 
it's a beautiful, interesting, uh, long couple sentences, but you have to think, stop and think about it. The unthinkable, the thinkable, the unthinkable, you know, it's all there, but it's not something you just kind of breeze through. Mm-hmm. You, have to, you have to apply yourself. And not that it's hard intellectually necessarily, but you just have to unpack it because he says a lot in a little. But go ahead. Okay, so if we go to back to page 110, so this is a section of the book where, um, where um, G.K. Chesterton is, is, is trying to paint a portrait or paint a picture of the, what he calls the real life of St. Thomas. And he does it by not only like just getting physical descriptions of him and like how did he walk through the the monastery and I actually found that interesting to be honest with you because the friary because he in his um, in his description of the magnanimous man and the virtue of magnanimity he says that the magnanimous magnanimous man does not walk in a hurry <laughs> and and uh, uh, G.K. Chesterton describes him as almost being in a hurry, but like in a distracted hurry. Like he's focused on like some thought in his mind, and he's almost like, I don't want to be distracted by the people or the things that are around me. Get me back to my books. Get me back to my place where I can ponder, reflect, and, and get this down in, in writing. You know, his descriptions are of him being such an extraordinary man, but such an ordinary man. You know, uh, and and I think the other thing that comes across here is his extraordinary humility in the way that he approaches people, approaches argue, argue arguments and such, and 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 gives everyone their due, and and. Uh, 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 with a profound, profound respect and patience with the arguments, uh, I, 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 I think of Pope Benedict and the way he argues things and what have you. Uh, it seems to me an imitation of what's described about Saint Thomas. So this comes back to the story then about um, here he is uh, in this time of his life where, uh, again, it's whether it's 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 a story that comes down about his life. And it wasn't that he was a person who wanted nothing. He was interested in everything. That's, uh, again, a, a Chestertonian way of re- referring to Aquinas. Uh, it says uh, on page 110, and this is, a, it continues earlier, but just to start here. He says, nobody supposes that St. Thomas Aquinas, when offered by God his choice among all the gifts of God, would ask for a thousand pounds or the crown of Sicily or a present of a rare Greek wine. But he might have asked for things that he really wanted. He was a man who could want things, as he wanted the lost manuscript of St. Chrysostom. He might have asked for the solution of an old difficulty, or the secret of a new science, or a flash of an inconceivable intuitive mind of the angels, or any other one of a thousand things that really would have satisfied his broad and virile appetite for the very vastness and variety of the universe. And then it goes on, but then it says this. It says that, uh, the answer of St. Thomas Aquinas, when he lifted at last his head and spoke with and for that almost blasphemous audacity, which is one with the humility of his religion, I will have thyself. Or, to add the crowning and crushing irony to the story, so uniquely Christian, for those who really can really understand it, there are some who feel that the audacity is softened by insisting that he said, only thyself. Comments, fathers? Well, 
this is the, you know, I think it's Brother Reginald who was listening in on this, uh, apparently. Um, and, and there's good, there's, again, the historian in me says there are good sources for this. It sounds like it's not a, I don't think it's just a legend. I think that there's um, some, uh, there's a basis, in fact, of biography here. But he is really, but again, he's being very logical. I mean, this is what John of the Cross would say. This is what the spiritual masters would say. This is, you know, when the genie pops out of the bottle or the God asks you something, what's your greatest wish? This is the answer. Um, and Thomas Aquinas knew the answer because uh, he understood everything that was ever presented to him. And, this, and so it's, it is an audacious reply and request because, again, it's, it's everything. In that, it's everything. If, if, I, if I have God, I'm, I have everything. Um, if I don't, I have nothing. And so, again, he just recognizes that this is the truth, and he's been living with the truth and working and writing for the truth his whole life. But also, this is, I think, right, as I recall the biography of him, this, this is right before he sort of ends his, his, um, his, his scholarly work. He says, you know, this is an insight. There's a truth here that he, it does sound like he is given this and recognizes that, you know, there's something, there's something else that I need to be doing rather than this work that in some sort of, sort of secondary way I'm working for God completely. But um, this is a turning point that he not only knows the truth, but somehow it's, he's experienced it here and it changes his life like it changes everybody who experiences it. I think it was really interesting what, towards the end of the book and it describes the circumstances uh, of his death and how he had given up writing and or give, given up disputations and such and the Pope had asked him to go uh, argue and engage in a disputation and uh, he's traveling to that and falls ill. And what it said that he asked that be read to him of all the scriptures to be read was the Song of Songs, and one might not think immediately. Doesn't seem uh, real scholarly. Uh, of the Song of Songs, except that, that you think of it, it speaks of God's passionate love and desire uh, for uh, our souls, for 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 us, uh, and um, you know, here uh, we have uh, him expressing. Uh, his desire only, I will have nothing except you, and and then as he go, uh, goes to his, his uh, to meet his maker, then he's he wants to hear of God's desire for him, um, which I think makes a nice bookend. Pam, what about you? It's just it's just too moving. And it's um, the kind of sentence to take to adoration. I agree. I agree. For me, this, this is one of those sentences that if you put it in front of you and you say, I'm going to welcome that sentence in, into my life, and I'll even ask the Lord, Lord, make this sentence come alive in my life. I want my life to be this sentence. It changes so many perspectives about... Like, what do I get concerned about? Where are my anxieties? What, what are my fears? What are my, what are my burning passions? And when God becomes all, then all other things just take on secondary importance. And, and, and they lose power over us to make us afraid. They lose power over us to make us uh, concerned. It's like, Lord... You are Lord over all, and if we have you, and, and you have us, and you've got us, 
then all will be well. <laughs> in the end, all will be well. And, and all manner of things will be well, right? There you go, Julian of yeah, Norwich. Yeah, throw thank her you, in. Julian. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just like when God is everything, then everything's okay. So I, I love the answer. I love the, especially from someone who, again, you could think his head was down, like head down, head down, writing, 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 dictating, dictating, dictating. And, and this shows, no, his head was only down because his spirit was up. His soul was always gazing upward. And just to, to, to give a plug for that other aspect of quietness that Chesterton mentions here that we don't think about so much because we think of the Summa and his writings and, and such, but we just celebrated Corpus Christi. And, of course, he wrote the texts for the celebration of Corpus Christi, the sequence and the Pangalingua and, and such. And if you have trouble finding the Summa accessible – um, or meditating upon those things, another way to access another aspect of Thomas is to take those out because there's such a richness in his poetry there that is grounded in his thought and this in his deep desire for God that's reflected in I'll have nothing I'll have nothing but you uh, in this quote. Amen. Well we're up against our last break. Uh, when we come back, we'll have a chance for probably one more quote on this uh, on this program where we're discussing St. Thomas Aquinas by G.K. Chesterton. And I'm going to allow the good fathers to arm wrestle over who gets to pick the last quote that we'll cover in our program today. But they'll do that off the air, and we'll come back and we'll let you know uh, who won and who's going to give the quote uh, in just one minute. Please stay tuned. Hey, welcome back to the program. This is the Sacred Art Radio Book Club edition of Sound Insight. We're discussing the book St. Thomas Aquinas by G.K. Chesterton. All right, fathers, where are we going to go? Where's our last quote, um, probably our last quote, uh, from the book St. Thomas Aquinas? Well, I lost, so I'll go. Um, I picked out, this is my historian thing, in my, uh, but I, on page 50, this is just an interesting, maybe just interesting to me, but... Chesterton says that at the, the bottom of the last paragraph, full paragraph, the rehabilitation of, of Aristotle was a revolution, almost as revolutionary as the exaltation of Dominic and Francis. And St. Thomas was destined to play a striking part in both. What I want to say about that is just the revolutionary nature of what Thomas Aquinas did, because I don't think we recognize him, not only, we don't think of him as a poet, we don't also don't think of him as being part of a revolutionary movement. We think of him as being the establishment, the stay, the old, the, the sturdy, the, uh, the stable, that kind of thing, because his... Eventually, his thought becomes so central to the Catholic Church's theology, and he becomes a doctor of the church, etc. So again, he's the ultimate established, almost reactionary figure in, in modern Catholicism, at least in some minds. And so I, always, I do want to just recognize that he, he was very original and brilliant and, and controversial. So what he's doing here and trying to use... Again, baptize reason and baptize these pagan uh, philosophers, especially Aristotle, um, who was just coming back in then um, from these various sources in the Jewish and uh, Arab worlds. I think it's worth just recognizing. Here's a here's a man who was a cutting edge. He was not only in a cutting edge religious order. Again, the Dominicans of Francis were very revolutionary. They were stirring things up just by their very lives. But also, so he was doing that simply by the way he was a beggar but also by the fact that he was 
Um, he was baptizing Aristotle, and you can be suspicious of these pagans. What if some of the pagan stuff gets in there? You know, so for all sorts of reasons, people opposed him, and he gently, firmly, and strongly, and, and peacefully held his ground and, and changed the course of Catholic theology in that way. So I think it just he's a revolutionary, not just a, a scholar. And I think you know he also gives gives hope for people who struggle or seemingly struggle and uh, struggle quietly. You know, on that same page, um, it talks about uh, you know. He, he was not thought of from outward appearance or outward demeanor for much of his school life uh, to be bright or brilliant. They thought him of slow and dull and what have you. But there were some of his teachers who saw something deep within him that gave the, that invited them to tutor him and nurture him the gift that God had given them. And one of those, of course, was St. Albert the Great, uh, the Dominican doctor of the church who he became his assistant. And, and of course, it was Albert the Great who said, you call him a dumb ox, that's his classmates or others, I tell you this dumb ox shall bellow so loud that his bellowings will fill the whole world. And uh, indeed, in his persistence, his faithfulness, his desire for God, you know, that's what happened. And, and I think you know, uh, there's there's inspiration, you know, for uh, all of us uh, there that uh, the, the world's perceptions are often wrong as to what God can do and is doing. Well, unfortunately, and we are coming up against of our, uh, the end of our time, but it would be such a fascinating thing to sort of trace out the relationships that St. Thomas Aquinas had in his life, everything from his family, being the youngest of seven brothers, having a, a noble sort of aristocratic uh, upbringing, you know, all the, the sort of, you know, the, the journey from being a Benedictine monk, car- locked up in, uh, you know, uh, or attempting <laughs> to be that, and locked up in a cell to escaping and being dragged by his brother. I don't know how it goes. But the point is, sorry, I, I wanted to mention also the gift of St. Bonaventure. Uh, he mm, gets, uh, Bonaventure makes an appearance like 10 different times in the book, and I have such a heart for Bonaventure, and I just loved the way that Chesterton highlighted the you know spiritual friendship they had, even though they differed in their approaches uh, theologically to uh, expounding upon the mystery of God as Catholic theologians. Uh, they also walked arm in arm in supporting and encouraging each other as members of these mendicant uh, orders. So... Uh, that's just, a, again, a big shout-out f- for all of us to say, do we have great teachers? Do we have great uh, brothers and sisters to walk with us as we fulfill the call that God has for us? Well, unfortunately, we are up against the end of our program. Father Nagel, Father Johnson, Pam, thanks so much for being with me today. And uh, we do encourage you, as you've you heard our reflections, to dip your toe into the book St. Thomas Aquinas by G.K. Chesterton, if, in fact, uh, you have at least a little bit of background into maybe one or both of those uh, authors, you'll probably find it to be a very enriching book. Hey, thanks so much for listening. We pray God's blessings on your day. Join me tomorrow for more Sound Insight.